show about Bigfoot. It's recorded for the skeptics, the believers, the knowers, the hopers, and those who just have a casual interest in the subject. For more information, visit our Facebook page. This is Sasswet, a show about Bigfoot. I'm your host, Mark Matsky, and as usual, I am joined by my son, Andy. Hi. Hello. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing pretty well. I'm kind of excited about this episode this week because we'll be talking to Stan Gordon, one of our favorite people to hang out with when we have the opportunity to do so. It's been a while since we've seen him, so this is kind of cool. We'll get to catch up a little bit with him. What's going on with you? Oh, I've just been doing schoolwork. Um, we went out to, me and my mom went out to Walmart today, and the thing that this slightly has to do with Bigfoot is um, we got toys, I convinced my mom to get me and you toys, for the new Kong movie, King Kong movie, um, Kong Skull Island. Um, some of the toys are sitting right in view. Um, we got you a big, how big is he? 18 inches tall? Yes, Boxes. 18. Mm-hmm. Um, King Kong figure that we tricked you about. Um, I feel kind of bad about it still. Um, we, we wrote him that they had these certain figures that were not actually of king kong and you wrote back oh no king kong and we're like no not really and there's already this 18 inch tall king kong figure in our cart and so then we wrote the more accurate there's none on the shelf which was a little hint at there may be one in our cart so we got that out of the box and it's awesome it has a well you can talk about it it is an impressive figure. It's got a lot of heft for a plastic figure. It's big, like you said. And like we've been saying all along about Kong of Skull Island, uh, he definitely has sort of a Bigfooty look to him. He's like a giant Sasquatch, which maybe it was on Monsterland Ohio Radio, where I said it's kind of a <laughs> fulfillment of a dream for me to have a giant Sasquatch movie. And that goes back to the Marvel Comics Godzilla series where Godzilla fought Yetrigar, which was the giant Sasquatch uh, from Canada. So that, I'm excited. I hope the movie is good, but from what I see of it, I don't really care how good it is. It looks like it has a lot of good monster action. So thank you very much. You did pull the wool over my eyes pretty well. Yeah, I felt terrible when we were going around getting our groceries like, can we just tell dad? <laughs> cause he, I can just tell cause we were still texting each other. I could tell you were a little sad. I was like, I feel terrible now. I was trying to be good about it. <laughs> You're like, I was uh, to no accept, Kong. <laughs> I was trying to accept, move right to acceptance and, uh, was rewarded. Oh, so and, that's good. And we got Sasquatch or what is it? Sasquatch or Bigfoot? Sasquatch Sasquatch pizza, pizza available <laughs> at your local Walmart. Um, so you know it's good. It's great. It tastes. It's Bigfoot meat. Um, <laughs> kind of like bologna, really. They just mix everything. Oh together, my goodness! So. We better head over to the meat news what? desk very quickly. Um, 
just wanted to quickly mention that the Kickstarter for Small Town Monsters 2017 movies, uh, Mothman of Point Pleasant and Invasion on Chestnut Ridge, that's still going. And new uh, stretch rewards have been added. And that's kind of cool. So that's all I'll say about it this week. If you're interested, go check it out. Um, On a more serious note, Word came through social media this week that Tom Yamarone, who's a real friend of the Bigfoot community and someone who we've enjoyed his music for hours upon hours, uh, suffered a stroke and uh, survived, is heading right to rehabilitation. So our prayers go out to Tom and his family for a quick and a full recovery. Anything you wanted to say, Andy, about his CD? Um, like you said, for hours and hours, that is not a stretch. Um, for pretty much as long as we've been going, we went to OBC. He was there, would you say? That's true. Um, and to hear his music, it was such one of those moments in the Bigfoot community where you realize this isn't just about, you know, going out in the woods dressed in camo um, calling out for Bigfoot. There's these people who take the whole subject differently. Um, and Tom is definitely one of those people who does research, but he also, you know, he does all this music and it's so good. It's so accurate as something like this can be. It's about as accurate as it can be. It's awesome. His songs about Jerry Crew and Ballad of John Green, the Bigfoot in Ohio that he debuted at the last OBC. Really creative and, like you said, accurate to the stories and respectful of the personalities. So we're just uh, praying that he gets well soon. Our guest tonight is none other than Stan Gordon, the author of 2010's Silent Invasion, as well as other works. And Stan, Andy's going to bring you in with just a little bit of an introduction, so here we go. Stan Gordon is an internationally recognized UFO and Bigfoot researcher. He is the primary investigator of the December 9th, 1965 UFO crash recovery incident near Kecksburg, PA, and producer of the 1998 award-winning video documentary, Kecksburg, The Untold Story. He is the author of the book, Really Mysterious Pennsylvania. He has appeared on network television documentaries, including the Sci-Fi Channel, Discovery Channel, and History Channel. He has been featured on many television shows, including Unsolved Mysteries, Sightings, Inside Edition, A Current Affair, Fox News Channel, and Creepy Canada. Gordon has featured in numerous newspaper stories and magazine articles, some of which include the Pittsburgh Press, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and the Denver Post. He has been a guest on many national and international radio shows, including the popular Coast to Coast. And that's our guest tonight, Stan Gordon. Stan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. It's always great to talk to you fellows. Oh, thank you very much. Hey, what's going on there? I, it sounds like you might have had some snow today. Yeah, we had a pretty good snow. I think it's the biggest one we had uh, during the winter season. I think it was actually bigger than we had last year, so we're kind of thankful, but... Uh, yeah, we've been out there digging for a few hours, and uh, it's starting to look a little better right now. <laughs> Do you have a snowblower? No, I don't have one, because generally we don't need it very that okay. 
you know, so I haven't gotten one, but uh, we've got a few other uh, hands that help us out around here, so we're generally pretty good. Excellent. Excellent. Well, uh, it's great to have you on. We're so appreciative of the time. And uh, for the benefit of our listeners, because a lot of the folks who listen to Sasquatch, a show about Bigfoot, aren't necessarily well-versed in uh, the subject. They may have sort of a casual interest in it and are looking to learn more. So if you could just let them know a little bit about how you got interested in the unexplained in the first place. Okay, well, this will take a few minutes. Uh, you know, my interest began a long time ago, back in 1959 when I was 10 years old. And what will surprise some of your listeners is, is that during the now going on 58 years of research, I have never personally seen a UFO or a Bigfoot myself. <laughs> Interviewed thousands of witnesses who have seen UFOs, hundreds of Bigfoot witnesses. I've seen a lot of evidence out in the field, but I've never had my own personal encounter. But going back to 1959, how I got involved coincidentally my birthday is during the Halloween season and it was back at that time my 10th birthday my parents gave me a radio an AM radio as a birthday gift and in that one particular evening I decided to turn on the radio and tune around the AM radio dial and there were some radio shows because of Halloween talking about strange and unusual happenings they're talking about oh flying saucers and strange creatures and haunted houses and I'm listening to this programs, and I'm wondering, are these people making these stories up? Are they telling the truth? So that started me on my pursuit to go to the Greensburg Library and read all the books they had on unusual topics and began to read the newspapers and cut articles out and made scrapbooks. And uh, that's how it all began for me. And then I was 16 years old in 1965 when the Kecksburg UFO incident occurred, about 12 miles from where I live. And um, anyhow, it uh, was a really interesting day. I remember that night very, very well. I was uh, tuned into KDK Radio in Pittsburgh, and they had a talk radio show called Contact. And, excuse me, the host of the program was having a guest on whose name was Frank Edwards, that you might recognize, who was a reporter who had written some books on unusual occurrences, and I wanted to listen to what he had to say. But as I'm listening to the program... Interestingly, almost the entire program is concentrating on this breaking news of this brilliant, fiery object that was seen from Ontario, Canada, over Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. And late that afternoon, around 4.47 p.m., apparently that object came in over the greater Pittsburgh area. And whatever it was, it moved out into Westmoreland County, about 12 miles from where I live, and it reportedly fell to a wooded ravine outside that little village. But, of course, what made the story much more fascinating was the fact that within a relatively short time after it fell, the military began to arrive in this farming community, and the area was cordoned off. And uh, just making the story short, uh, hundreds of people, including reporters, descended on that community that night to try to get a glimpse of whatever was down in the woods. And um, once the military came in, people couldn't get anywhere near that wooded area. The area was, again, shut down or cordoned off, and we know that about 1 o'clock in the morning, that object under a tarp was taken to Lockbourne Air Force Base near Columbus, Ohio, stayed there for a short time under very heavy guard that was continued on to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Now, where it's at today, we really don't know for sure. So that's what really got me out into the field to begin my first-hand investigation of Bigfoot and strange creatures and other phenomena, and I've been out in the field ever since. Um, 
But then in the late 60s, I got involved with a group in Pittsburgh called the UFO Research Institute. It was a small group of mainly some Westinghouse uh, research people and other professionals. That's when Stanton Frieden was just beginning his research, and we got to know each other pretty well. I was the youngster of the group, but I became a telephone sighting coordinator because I already had a lot of experience interviewing witnesses, and I stayed with that group until they shut down their operation. And in 1969, I decided to set up a hotline for the public to report UFO sightings and began to make contact with local police and the news people in this area. And things were a lot different back in those days because you had no Internet, no cell phones. Right. And there was a lot more ridicule on the subjects than there is today. But anyhow, as word got out about my hotline, the phone in my house was ringing day and night and calls were coming in about all kind of phenomena. It wasn't just UFOs, but anything unusual reports were coming in. It became very apparent I couldn't handle this on my own. I decided to try to organize a volunteer research group, hopefully of specialist research people. And in 1970, I founded the first of three groups. That was the Westmore County UFO Study Group. And we, surprisingly, we, we began very small. But we had some very prominent scientists and engineers and research people, police officers, former military intelligence people. We had people who were working for at that time, like Golf Research, uh, Alcoa, Westinghouse. So very credible people, most who were working with me anonymously. And with my electronics background, I set up an elaborate uh, radio communication center and a two-way radio dispatch system to dispatch some of the investigators out to the scene. That's how it all began for me. And uh, I'm sure we'll be talking more about some of the strange things Glenn covered soon after our, our group was developed. Oh, yeah, definitely. Now, the one thing I'm really interested in is how did you find each other as far as researchers? Because today, kind of like you said, you know, that would be probably an Internet phenomena. You know, you'd find each other through chat rooms or Facebook pages and coordinate that way. But... You know, you didn't have access to that. So how did you make contact with people to say, you know, you want to be on this uh, research team? Well, interestingly, um, you know, I started doing public speaking on these events right, a- right after high school. So I was out there trying to educate the public on these things, and I was doing actually a lot of public education programs for a lot of organizations around the Pittsburgh area, for one thing. And... Uh, as my group was getting out there in the 1970, especially during the 72, 73, actually we got quite a lot of very good newspaper coverage around here. They, they looked into what we did. They realized that my position was to be open-minded but skeptical. There were a lot of reports coming in. And back in those days, there was a lot of articles and news stories appearing in the local papers. And so a lot of people were realizing that, gee, there's a place that we could actually report a sighting to. And uh, so we were getting a lot of really good education, rather a lot of good uh, word out there to the public about what we were doing, and they were hearing about the research we were doing, and there was a lot of word of mouth. A lot of people began to realize that, you know, that I had these groups, and um, the first group, of course, was, as I said, mentioned, was started in 1970. By 1973, we had expanded to cover the whole state of Pennsylvania, and actually, to our surprise, we began to get referrals from the state police and other agencies, and hmm. we were getting a lot of reports and referrals from the news media and many other sources, so we were extremely busy, and we were one of the only places in the country where there was a place to actually report a sighting, and you would have people actually go out and investigate the reports. 
Yeah, and that is one feature of your teams is, if I'm not mistaken, you would try to get out there as soon as possible after the report came in. And uh, that probably yielded some interesting data for you guys, didn't it? Oh, yeah. We uncovered a huge amount of amazing information and, in fact, some very interesting physical artifacts that we recovered over the years from some of the cases. And, and the main goal I was trying to set up back in those days was it was a, a quick response unit that would respond to cases 24 hours a day around our regular jobs, is what we did. So in hundreds of cases, we had investigators or teams on the scene within minutes to hours after it occurred, and that's why we were able to document some of these phenomena so well back in those days. Are any of those groups still in existence? Unfortunately not. You know, I had these groups basically from 1970, and then there was a little break, and then it continued into uh, the end of 1993. And uh, since that time, I've been working as an independent researcher, but I continue to have contacts. Well, unfortunately, and a lot of people were back in my groups back in the days are now deceased. Hmm. Many of them are up there in age, and so they're pretty much out of it. I still have contacts with some of those people, and I have other contacts with other researchers throughout the state and other parts of the country. So even And I try to get out there as much as I can, even though I'm a little more limited now than when I was back when I was a youngster. But, um, you know, cases that weren't, on-scene investigations, I try to get out myself or have other of my associates get out there to investigate. So uh, my hotline today is as active as it was in 1969. Wow. It it rings almost daily with past (laughs) and current reports between the hotline number and reports that come in and my email address through the website. Many reports come here on quite a regular basis. Is that basically you then sorting through all of those? That again? Is that you sorting through all of those reports that come into your hotline? You don't. Have, do you have anyone else helping you? Oh no, I've I've done this pretty much on my own. It's all done in my house. Wow. And uh, so no, I I try to deal with these cases one on one. But again, depending on the situation, of course, since I don't have my groups anymore, when we had the groups, we would have teams or investigators, you know, get out to many areas across the state very quickly. Uh, don't have that capability anymore, but again, situation is a lot different today. You know, today you've got many, many small groups showing up all over Pennsylvania and across the country, many other individual researchers, many of them have their own websites, so there's many places now that people can report sightings to, but I still get quite a lot of reports in here. So when did Bigfoot reports really start to ramp up and you know, kind of come alongside the UFO reports that you were receiving? Well, that goes back to 1973, which is the focus of my Solid Invasion book and the weird, weird cases we uncovered. And, you know, I got involved in investigating Bigfoot reports in the late 1960s. And, of course, I was aware of the reports that had been going on in Pennsylvania for many years, dating back to the Native Americans. And there, there actually is quite a number of newspaper articles from the... the uh, 1800s that talk about sightings of hairy creatures and strange footprints being found. And um, they actually, the earliest firsthand account that I have in this area of actual sightings go back to 1931 from Fayette County, PA. And I'm sure you'll hear me talking about Fayette County quite a bit tonight. Mm -hmm. And um, so they've been going on for years and years. In the late 60s, uh, we were hearing reports in different areas. Some of the earliest reports I investigated was down 
uh, in the area called West Newton and around Lober. And back in the 60s, they had what they called the Lober Monster, where local residents were out searching the woods and down around the creek beds, searching for this seven, eight-foot-tall, white-haired, hairy, bipedal creature that people had seen. They had found large footprints in the area. That was some of the earlier reports I heard. And ever since that time, including last year, there have been more reported sightings in that general area by different people. So it's been going on here for a long, long time. But now going back in history, and this is when things got very fascinating. Um, again, luckily my group, my first group was already organized. None of us were ever prepared to what was about to take place in 1973. And uh, some of your listeners will recall in the fall of 1973, there was this major UFO wave that struck across the United States. So during the evening news and papers across the country, there were many headlines about UFO sightings taking place that peaked in the fall of that year. Now, that was very interesting, but here in Pennsylvania, this massive UFO wave began January 1st, and it continued to the last day of the year. We had hundreds and hundreds of UFO reports coming in from all across the state. So we were very busy just looking through these reports. And something I'll tell you that I found years and years ago, and it's still the same today, whether it be a UFO sighting or a Bigfoot encounter or other phenomena, many of these reports, initially when they came in, they may sound strange and unusual. However, when you take the time to properly investigate them, quite a lot of incidents are determined to be either natural or man-made in origin. There's a lot of misidentifications, even with Bigfoot. I mean, over the years, some of the misidentifications have, have been definitely bear sightings. Some were very large, shaggy dogs. <laughs> some were hunters and uh, camouflage outfits. So there were different things that could create some of these events. However, there were many, many cases over the years. I've investigated hundreds of Bigfoot sightings now across the state where these things were seen, even in daylight, at extremely close range. Not like you see on TV where they see a shadow in the dark a half a mile away. Many of these were incidents where these things were five to ten feet away from witnesses. Wow. Generally, where they walked out in front of vehicles, they were seen in rural areas like from mobile homes, looking out a window, walking by a porch, things like that. And some of these were extremely detailed accounts. And um, so that's how it all began. And then, of course, we got into that massive wave of 1973, which we can talk about if you like. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, one question I do have about the UFO flap is, was there, like, was there any uniformity to what was being cited? Or was it just all types of shapes of, uh, you know, things in the sky? There were, there were a lot of reports. Some were formations of lights. Uh, some were large structured craft. I remember a lot of reports of uh, big cigar-shaped objects, uh, spherical objects, sometimes bigger objects emitting smaller ones. But there were a lot of really detailed accounts back in those days of these things hovering over highways, um, pacing vehicles, uh, landing reports, sometimes with physical traces on the ground. I mean, it, it was just an amazing time. And interestingly, a lot of these cases weren't getting the attention of the news. So back in those days, the newspapers were covering these cases very, very seriously and focusing on the investigations we were doing. And um, so it, it was a whole different time period. 
So, I mean, a lot of these UFO reports were extremely detailed, and uh, even today, just some of these cases we never had a good explanation for. That's remarkable how the media coverage has changed in that regard. Uh, just well, to... you know, I, I hear a lot of investigators talk about that, and, you know, the whole thing with the newspaper field has changed a lot because now so many of the newspapers we used to have in the area, many local papers, they're no longer around. But I can tell you, up to the point even the last few years where some of them were around and now some are gone, I, I still continue to receive some very nice, serious coverage about investigations. And we received a lot of good coverage on the Kexpert case, a lot of good coverage on other investigations that uh, I've been doing over the last year, several years. So I, I've still received some very good news coverage uh, you know, uh, when I'm talking locally, when I'm investigating cases, so it's still out there. You know, I hear a lot of people say around the country, well, the newspapers never covered these stories, but I can't comment on what's going on around there, but I can tell you, here in this part of the state, uh, I've always had very nice newspaper coverage, which was very neutral. That's great. I think that's a testament to... Once people talk to you and your research team, uh, they see that this isn't a joke. You know, you're doing this seriously and uh, open-minded, but as, but skeptically, as you said. Um, so that's that's good. I'm glad to hear that. So 1973, there's this tremendous outbreak of both UFO sightings and the Bigfoot reports start to just multiply. Uh, take us back to that. And uh, what were some of those initial reports that let you know something extremely odd was going on? Well, I'll tell you what. I still remember a lot of those days like it was yesterday. It was a time, it was just an amazing time to live through. And I, and I always say it's very difficult for people to even imagine what was happening out there unless you were directly involved. And I can tell you, a lot of the scientists or research people who came, were in my team a lot of these guys were were skeptical because of their scientific background. But I can tell you, a lot of these people, once they got out in the field and they went out and interviewed the witnesses, they saw the evidence at the scene, they began to see the patterns, they began to realize that, you know what, something's going on here we don't have an explanation for. And even today, some of these fellows I'm still in contact with and they're still involved on their own, and... Um, They've gone from a complete skeptic to beginning to realize that, you know what, there are things out there we just don't understand yet. But that time period was just amazing. And how the Bigfoot phenomenon all began in this outbreak in 73. Now, it's the summer of 73. During this whole period, all these UFO reports are going on. So I remember getting excuse me, a phone call on um, it's August the 7th, I believe it was, August 7th, 73, from a relative of a person who lived in a uh, rural area outside of Greensburg, actually only a few miles from where I live. And uh, on that particular evening of July 31st, I got a call a week later after it happened, July 31st, it was a warm night as I recall. <laughs> Bear with me, I'm getting over this bad cough and oh, cold. Understood. Anyhow, um, he was in the bathroom shaving that night because he always got up early for work, and he's in the bathroom, and the window was up, and he had a screen in the window, and the guy's shaving early, as he always did to get up early for work, began to smell this rotten odor. He said, like rotten cucumber, turned around and looked at the window, and here's these two huge glowing red eyes staring at the window. 
The wind is eight feet off the ground. So he ran into the house, into another room, and started yelling, and a couple other people came out, and they smelled the odor, but whatever was in the window was gone. They had dogs outside, and they, they thought it was really strange that the dogs weren't barking, because they always barked at any intruders, and uh, that's how this all began. I went out to interview him a week later, because he had been going into the hospital after the incident, possibly related to what he saw. He was pretty upset, and um, found out that Several weeks before, some local boys have been taking a, a shortcut over to the local mall. Well, back in those days, um, there was a lot of a lot of woods and brush through the area, and they heard this noise in the woods. They thought it was a deer. Started throwing some rocks in to scare the deer out. Instead, here's a seven, eight foot tall, dark hair covered creature with long arms swinging, crossing the road, and it went up behind the hill, up behind the house. So I was able to interview some of the boys. <laughs> I got, per- excuse me, got permission from some of the uh, people on the property to go up and look around uh, on the land. Some of the boys followed me up. And we're looking around up there. I remember up on that bankment. Ground conditions were not really that good up around there. Stayed up there for a while, about ready to leave. And I happened to look down. From what I recall, there was a partial track, and there was one very complete bizarre-looking footprint on the ground. Mm. And the boys ran over and said, what kind of animal can make a track like that? Mm. It was, without a doubt, the strangest-looking footprint I had ever seen. It was clearly defined. It was 13 inches long, 8 inches wide, and clearly three-toed. And I got on the radio, and one of my associates came out, and we took photographs and measurements, made a cast of the footprint. While we're out there, we get a radio call that one of our investigators... uh, north of Pittsburgh, almost the Ohio line, had been investigating incident that happened that morning of something that was nine feet tall looking in a window, and police had found large footprints up in that area. So this began this wave of Bigfoot activity that went on for weeks and months hmm. into 1974. It was unbelievable. I mean, this was going on day and night. Sometimes there were simultaneous reports coming in from widespread areas, so we knew we were dealing with more than one creature, and in some cases, there were actually more than one creature seen together. We had some instances where two or three creatures were seen in a group, and um, they were coming, first it started more in southwestern PA, then it began to spread to other parts of the state. And um, it was just incredible. And it was getting, as, as word began to get out, and the police began overwhelmed with reports, um, it got to be... Uh, very, very serious situation, actually, in some areas. And um, anyhow, it, it, it was just an amazing time period. So all these reports are coming in. And I had always thought from the information I had, and always felt was that Bigfoot, if it was real, and I was becoming more and more convinced that people were seeing something out there, that is probably an unknown primate. However, as these reports are unfolding, Again, you got to remember, there's no internet, there's no cell phones, mm-hmm. whole different time period. Back in those days, when somebody was frightened or something happened, they would call the police directly. So a lot of these calls were initially coming into the police departments or the news media. And some very strange things began to come to our attention. Um, just to give you an example, I remember some of our teams would go out to some of these locations where Bigfoot had been seen, and there would be some physical evidence sometimes at the scene, such as trails and footprints. 
but in some cases, those trails of tracks will suddenly stop and disappear. But the ground conditions were good. There should have been more tracks. They just suddenly vanished, which just didn't make any sense. Mm. And then um, we had some instances where um, I remember one farm out in Derry Township. There were a lot of that, a lot of Bigfoot activity, and still is, by the way, during this wave along the Chestnut Ridge, which we'll talk about outside of between Lake Trobe and Derry and Westmoreland County along the Chestnut Ridge where there was a lot of activity being reported during this time from small communities. And um, I remember some farms of these things were repeatedly being reported on farms where they were hearing a creature screams and seeing the creature and tracks were being found, animals were going crazy. All kind of strange things were happening. I remember one night on one particular farm where this thing kept coming back and uh, the people were pretty frightened and shook up. And they had just called, um, I think the state police, and then we got the call that this thing had just come back on the farm. We got out there within about half an hour, and um, there were tracks in the barnyard. The animals were very, very physically frightened. You could see that. And um, they had a big cornfield. It was dark. There was something heavy making a very unusual, almost asthmatic-like sound, like heavy breathing sound running through the cornfield away from us, and we chased it through the cornfield. <laughs> and we recorded the sounds as we're running after it, but whatever it was, we could never catch up to it. And um, just a lot of strange... And on that farm and other farms, they, and I remember one of the residents bringing up the fact to me that they would see these strange lights on their property. They wouldn't actually call it a UFO or something. It's mystery lights and strange lights. One was like a small elongated, uh, I think like a, I think it was orangish, almost like a flare that would hover around the woods and around their fields, and they would comment that they would see these strange lights soon after the creature would be there, and they didn't know if it was a coincidence or not. Hmm. And um, this is when things began to come to our attention, and then we began to see a wider pattern from widespread areas that we would have, for example, a, a UFO sighting in a certain area, and then within minutes to hours or days later, we would have a Bigfoot sighting or vice versa. And then we began to have some of those amazing, well-documented incidents with a UFO and a Bigfoot seen together at the same time and place. And uh, that's when things really began to make us scratch our heads, like, what are we dealing with? Right. Yeah. Um, that's one thing from your book that I... I hadn't really thought of before, I guess, and it really made sense. And that was the reaction of animals to the phenomena. That, you know, you, whatever it was, they were being frightened or scared, and, and animals would not act in their typical way. That was a neat insight. That's something I did see, and police officers saw, and, and other investigators. And, uh, you know, you can fool people, you really can't fool the animals. And,. When these creatures, when these Bigfoot creatures are in close proximity to various animals, they, they act completely unusual from what the farmers and people know, how they generally act, like where they eat, how they eat, where they stay. I mean, on, on horses and cattle and cats, this was very common, but very prominent with dogs. Even the most ferocious dogs, when they were close to these creatures, they would not bark, they would... They would cower, they would cry, they would hide. Some cases, they, they physically 
I mean, just um, did things to try to get away from these things and hide. Uh, in some cases, they wouldn't eat probably for two or three days later. I mean, these were things that were very consistent, and um, it's something you just could not fabricate. So, Stan, I have, I'm wondering, do you have any favorite reports from that era? Oh, yeah. Well, there, there were some amazing ones, and, and those were some of the cases that convinced myself and my team members that this Bigfoot phenomena is much more complex, much more unusual than any of us could have ever imagined. And what, what I'm going to mention to you now in some of these cases, remember this, because it's very, people. a lot of people misunderstand what I'm trying to say. Have some of these cases you hear about with UFOs and Bigfoot seen together. I am not implying, for example, that Bigfoot is an alien or an extraterrestrial. We just don't know what they are. There's so many unanswered questions. I can only tell you what we uncovered. I can't explain everything as people reported. But just like with the UFO reports, I've said for years, it's it's very likely that we're dealing with more than one source for the unknown category. You know, are some of these things extraterrestrial? That's a possibility, which I don't think we completely rule out. But I can tell you in more recent years, I'm beginning to separate more from the ET theory, even though that might explain some. But I think for lack of a better term, we're dealing with something that is interdimensional, that we're dealing with something that comes in from another reality, that under certain conditions, and we know there's an energy connection to it, these things come into our reality, they look physically solid, they can leave physical evidence that are gone. This is both with Bigfoot and very likely with other cryptid reports, which is why you never find any bodies, and with certain types of UFOs that appear and disappear, physically change form. It's a very complex phenomena, and the more I know about it, the more I understand why the government may not be forthcoming, because I'm not so sure they have all the answers themselves, they're still trying to figure out themselves. And um, so it's very, very intriguing what we uncovered. So anyhow, going back to Andy's question, yeah, there were some amazing cases. Just to give you just a few off the top of my head, going back to the 73 time period, September 27th, um, Beaver County, there were uh, two women outside in the country waiting for a friend to, to pick them up. They see this very tall, seven, eight foot tall, white hair covered Bigfoot type creature running across the road towards the woods. Well, it, that was strange enough, but in one of its hand, it was carrying a smoke glowing ball of light. <laughs> it ran into the woods. A short time later, an object came across the sky and projected a, be excuse me, a beam of light down into the woods where the creature ran into. <laughs> we thought that was very fascinating. Um, other reports began to come in. And then the case of all cases, and I'm sure you've read the whole story in the, book, in the South Asian book. I mean, it's too long to cover the whole story. It is probably one of the strangest cases ever documented anywhere in the world yeah. of talking about bizarre phenomena of what took place in the field during the night. But the early part of the story is October 25th, 1973, up in Fayette County, again, outside of Uniontown, um, about 10.30 that night, I got a call from a state trooper from the Uniontown barracks, and he had just come back from investigating a, a multiple witness UFO incident uh, where he had a UFO landed on the ground and two Bigfoot creatures in the field at the same time. And um, 
anyhow, it, when we found out it was about 9 o'clock that night, there was about uh, 15 people in this rural farming community, and here's this object in the sky. It's about as big as a barn. It's a big red sphere, and it's about 100 feet off the ground, and it's dropping towards the pasture. <laughs> so the story focuses on um, the farmer's son, who was quite a big fella, coming down to visit his dad. It was his dad's farm where this was taking place. Sees this thing as he's riding down the farm road, takes a, a tour off to the uh, neighbor's house to get a different viewpoint of this thing, and he's watching this thing look like it's getting lower. So he and two young boys decide they were going to go up to that field, up to that pasture, and see what this thing was. Stops over to his dad's farm, grabs a odd 6 and a handful of ammunition, in that ammunition were two tracers. So if you've been a hunter, you know you just get that luminous trail when you fire that tracer. Hmm. Anyhow, they make their way up the hill to the pasture. They're getting closer to the area in the distance. Dogs are going crazy. They have this high-pitched whining sound and like baby crying sounds. And when they finally get to the top of the pasture, they're standing there cannot believe what they're seeing. Because about 250 feet away, the object is on the ground or right above it. But it's now a big white dome, maybe 100 feet or more in diameter, light illuminating the whole area, making that high-pitched whining noise. It's not the whole sphere. And they're standing there in amazement, studying this thing, trying to figure out what this thing is. But shortly after that, their attention's drawn about 75 feet away to a barbed wire fence. And along that barbed wire fence are these two tall bipedal long-armed, hairy creatures walking slowly in their direction. The one in front is about eight feet tall, and the one behind is about seven feet tall. They're um, covered with long, dark, matted hair. They have large, glowing, luminous green eyes. They're making this baby crying sound. They have no neck. Their arms are so long, they're almost down to the ground. And they're moving very slowly, one behind the other. So the one boy finally, I mean, he's so frightened, he, he runs out of the field. The other boy yells to the fella, shoot him, shoot him. The guy finally takes a shot. The first shot at the tracer. He just had that luminous trail. He fires that second tracer. And when he does, there's an interesting reaction for the largest creature. It makes this loud baby crying whining sound, reaches out its one hand towards the tracer. And the moment it does that, the object in the field disappears. No, it doesn't take off. It's just gone. Hmm. And when it disappears, most of the luminosity is gone. The sound is gone. Everything is getting dark. And the creatures turn around, so I start walking back along the fence line. At that point, the guy's firing live ammo from his 30 6 right into mainly the biggest creature. And that fellow told me until he passed away, he said, I'll never forget how that thing stared at me with those glowing green eyes as I'm pumping live ammo into it, and there was no effect on it whatsoever. At that point, they became pretty frightened, and they ran back to the truck, went to the farmhouse, got the family out, took them to a neighbor, and called the state police. So when the troop arrived about 45 minutes later, he's talking to the witness, and the guy said, look, just forget about it. You're going to think I'm nuts. And the trooper said, look, we had a report of two similar creatures up on the up on the ridge the night before, and we have to investigate this. So they go up in the troop car, they go up in the field where the object had been, where they saw the creatures looking for evidence, and the trooper told me the area where the object appeared to be on the ground 
was now self-luminescent and glowing, about 100 feet or more in diameter. He said the farm animals wouldn't go into it. He said he shined his flashlight beam, you could barely see it, and he said if he had a newspaper, he could have sat down within that glowing area and read the newspaper for the light coming off the glowing area. Wow. Things then began to get even a little stranger, and at that point they went back to the barracks, when they went back to the barracks, they were both separately interviewed, the trooper and the witness. After that, I was notified to send them up a team, which we did, and then things got extremely unusual during that time of what took place. And don't have time to get into the whole thing. I wrote the whole thing up in my Silent Invasion book, but I know you've read the story, mm-hmm. and it's one of the strangest things ever on record. That was the case that convinced my team that now we're dealing with something that we had no idea what we were getting into. And that was just the beginning because even weirder cases began to come to our attention, which suggested that in some instances, Bigfoot may not be a flesh and blood animal, which is why there's no bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely the outcome of that case that you just described was an individual who was deeply affected by what happened. Do you notice that across the board, that when you interview Bigfoot witnesses that, uh, you know, that it, it's affected them on a pretty deep level? Yeah, well, not not to the point of what you saw what happened up in the field that night. That was a completely different reaction. But I can tell you, many of the best witnesses I have, whether it be a UFO encounter, especially cryptid encounters, or people who never believed that these things could exist so they had their own personal encounter. I mean, just like with UFO sightings, I, I've interviewed people from all walks of life, from, you know, doctors and farmers and police officers and, you know, educators and engineers and hunters, people who have no reason to make these stories up. And most of these people had no interest in these accounts or they didn't believe they could exist. Some of these people used to laugh at people about these reports. And believe me, once they had their own encounter, their lives were dramatically changed. As some of these people I interviewed 20, 30 years ago, I'm still in touch with today. And even today, these people's lives are affected by what they saw and what they encountered. So you said things got even weirder. Um, could you touch on that real quick? What were, what were some of the, the weird cases that continued on? Well, the, the one case that sticks out was the case, again, that convinced me that maybe now we know why there's no bodies of Bigfoot. And I've questioned that for years and years. It's never made sense to me that you have these sightings for how many years, going back to Native Americans throughout the country and other countries or something similar, they see these things every year. I mean, it only makes common sense. If this was a normal animal, by now somebody would have found the body, I don't recommend shooting at him, but somebody would have shot one. Somebody would have hit one with a car. It just doesn't make any sense. And then we had this one particular incident, and this was a case that, again, that was really interesting to me and, and others who were involved in it. February 6, 1974, again, way deep up in the mountains of Fayette County. Uh, some of your listeners will remember the time period because there was a, a national trucker strike going on. There was a lot of violence on the highways across the country. There was gas rationing going on. So some people remember that. And that prohibited me from getting up to the scene that night. I couldn't get up the next morning because I couldn't get gas. Anyhow, what we found out was that about that evening, 
uh, this woman who uh, lived in a little cabin home. She had uh, been there for years and years, was very familiar with animals, was a very good shot, was sitting there watching her TV that night as normal, and she heard this commotion on her little front porch of her cabin home, and she had some pop cans out there. Someone was rattling the pop cans around, and um, she had in the past had a, a pack of wild dogs come through, so she figured the dogs are back. So she thought, you know what, I'm just going to grab my shotgun, and I'll fire around over their head to scare them away. So she loads one chamber of her shotgun, and uh, she walks over to the door, over to the wall, and switch on the light for the uh, porch. And uh, she proceeds to go to the front door, and she steps outside, and only a few feet away, she looks, and there's no dogs, but here's this huge, hairy creature, about seven, eight foot tall, with long hair, dark hair on it, and it has its hands raised up straight above its head, and her reaction is she fires right into it with a shotgun. She said there was this bright flash of light, like the flash of a camera, and it vanishes right in front of her. Now, her in-laws heard the gunshot. They lived about 100 feet away, and they called and asked her what was going on, and she tried to explain what happened. So her son-in-law grabs his pistol, and he starts walking up towards her cabin home. He can see a shadowy figure running up the road, and as he gets closer, he said he's surrounded by, I believe, with four or five hairy people with eyes like coals of fire, starts shooting at him randomly as he runs into her home. And about that same time, when they're looking out the window, there's this large object, like a big Christmas ornament with different light, colored lights on it, hovering over the woods at the same time. Wow. So they called the state police, and then by the time uh, the investigators found the scene, whatever was there was gone. However, I talked to the uh, the state tr- the main pr- state trooper investigator who was in- involved in the investigation, and he said, I don't know what happened up here. Something very strange took place, and he based that on the animal reactions, what he saw. And um, they had several dogs and other animals at the scene, but mainly his focus was on those dogs. These dogs were vicious dogs. I think one was an was a uh, I think one was an Eskimo Spitz, as I remember. I remember telling me one of the dogs was in a cage, and he opened the cage because the dog wasn't barking or moving. And the dog, I mean, that dog should have ripped his arm off, and the dog wouldn't even move or bark at him. <laughs> and uh, it was just a very unusual sight up there soon after this event took place. When I got there early the next morning, when we got there, everything was back to normal, and the old dogs were all barking again and wouldn't let us anywhere near them. And uh, so it, it, apparently something very strange happened up there. That was not the only incident we had where people claimed that they shot at these things and they disappeared. So there, there's so much more to this phenomena that any of us have any idea about. And it's not something that's happened just in Pennsylvania. You know, I've been in touch with Bigfoot researchers for years, since the 70s, since this happened, all across the country and many other parts of the world. And many other researchers were aware of similar cases. I mean, many parts of the country, like the Pacific Northwest and out in Oregon and different places, we've had a history of Bigfoot sightings. Many strange accounts continue, have occurred out the, around those uh, parts of the country for years and years. But what I found out was that many Bigfoot researchers who knew of these incidents, they were reluctant to publish it because they didn't want to get attacked by their peers and be ridiculed. And, of course, as we, as we still know today, even though things appear to be changing now, 
a lot of people in the UFO field do not want to associate UFOs with Bigfoot and vice versa. Many in the Bigfoot field do not want to connect Bigfoot with UFOs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my position is I'm, a, I'm an objective investigator. This is what we uncovered. I don't have the answers to what's going on, but I'm not about to you know, pretend it's not occurring because we need to get this information out to exchange data and try to learn more about what's occurring out there. Yeah, that's fascinating to me that there is kind of an orthodoxy, it seems, you know, among some researchers where they it's got to be flesh and blood only, and they will filter the reports that they receive based on that. But um, the, the reports just keep piling up, and eventually I think the, the truth will out, and you've been a big part of that. Well, you know, ever since I wrote my Solid Invasion book, I, I've had a very big reaction from all around the country and other countries as well. And so many researchers are beginning to ask the same questions I've had for years. And and I'm seeing a, a, quite a trend now. I mean, if you go on the Internet, you talk, listen to radio talk shows, more and more people in the Bigfoot field are beginning now to bring up some of the different things that I've talked about for since the 1970s. And um, you know, one thing I've noticed in more recent years, and this is something that's becoming very common around the country, is that Bigfoot teams, Bigfoot investigators in areas where there's a history of Bigfoot activity are out there searching for Bigfoot. And while they're not finding Bigfoot, they're seeing strange lights hovering around the area, hmm. strange objects in the sky. And this is becoming a lot more common. Are there any recent sightings you would like to share with us tonight? Well, you know, last year was very interesting. I mean, it was we had quite a number of very interesting Bigfoot reports. Actually, last year, um, the first day of the year started off with a Bigfoot encounter, and this was January 1st. This was uh, on the border of Allegheny and Westmoreland County, so right outside of Pittsburgh. And uh, this was a fellow who uh, was visiting uh, in the area from out of state, visiting relatives for the holidays, was just traveling home early that morning, leaving his uh, relative's home, when um, as he's going around the bend on this road, this darkened road, some of the headlights of the cars ahead of him were uh, hitting this figure walking on the side of the road, and uh, the witness noticed this thing was a brown, hair-covered creature, about six feet tall. He said it wasn't as big as some of the reports you hear about, but he said it was around six feet tall. His arms hung down past the knees in a walk with a hunch. And he said the most prominent feature was that it had two glowing red eyes, which we hear more and more about. Hmm. And he said he was certain the way the cars were all slowing down that other people had to have seen it. Mm -hmm. So that was the first report of the year. And then April 17th, back to when, you know, I talked about the sightings back in the 60s near West Newton. And over the last several years, there's been more reports down there from different people. April 17th of last year, this was during the evening, a woman was driving down a rural road, uh, um, which is paralleling along the river. She was coming into West Newton when she noticed ahead of her, there was a tall, dark figure emerge, emerging from the right side of the woods and was moving right up on the road that she was just approaching. And as she got down, she slowed down, and here's a seven-foot-tall, hair-covered creature covered with long, brownish-red hair. And, as, and she said uh, the arms were long and skinny and that they had large red eyes that were glowing, and it was looking in the passenger side window directly at her. 
and she became extremely frightened. She said she never drove so fast in her life <laughs> down the road. Yeah. This person had no interest in Bigfoot, didn't care about Bigfoot, didn't believe in Bigfoot. It um, had quite an, quite an effect on her. And then the month after that, up back in Fayette County, where there's a lot of history year after year of Bigfoot sightings, uh, one of my associates, Jim Brown, investigated this case on um, March, May 10th. This was on a, uh, a very rural road outside of Fairchance, PA, where there's been a lot of history over the years of Bigfoot encounters. Two men were riding down this dark road that night. It was very foggy. There was a very heavy rain. And all of a sudden, the seven-foot-tall, hair-covered creature drops down from the bank on the left side of the road, and it stops right in front of the car about 20 feet away. Driver slams on the brakes, and they're sitting there looking at each other. They talk about seeing those glowing red eyes. And um, as they're looking at each other, at one point, the guy pulled his car back very slowly, then actually moved it forward very slowly, and both of the people in the car felt the car make slight contact with the creature. At that point, the creature placed its hands on the front of the vehicle, and it had the bumper against its legs, and soon after, the creature turned and ran down the road and left the area. So that was a very interesting case. Wow. And interestingly, uh, I think it was about a week later that a group of re Bigfoot researchers went up to the scene to look for evidence. And once again, they saw strange glowing spheres of light in the trees, low level, that they could not explain. Wow. Wasn't there an older case where a kind of a young driver pinned a strange creature and uh, then let him go. I, I think I was looking at that in the book today. Yeah, that that was actually 1972, as I recall. Okay. And uh, this is good from memory. I haven't looked at that case for a while, but <laughs> okay. <laughs> excuse me. Mm -hmm. uh, this was down along one of the river towns down in the Mon Valley, outside of Pittsburgh. And um, as I recall, it was around Halloween time, and this uh, young teenager and his friend had the career driving around the car that night, and they see this tall, what they thought at first was, they thought this was somebody fooling around in a, in a costume dressed up for Halloween, because it was around Halloween, and that's what they thought at first this thing was. It was a large, hairy, tall, hairy creature right uh, walking down this street, and this thing was like right on the side of like a curb, as I recall, and they actually pinned, they moved up very slowly, <laughs> and they pinned this thing between the car, and I think it was the sidewalk, something along that. And then as they're looking up at this thing, and I believe it turned around and put its hands on the front of the car, they soon realized that this was not somebody dressed up, but this was a real living, strange being they had never seen before. <laughs> yeah. They pulled back, and the thing started riding down the road. They hurried down, uh, I guess, off the side road, went a, few, a couple blocks down, and some of their friends were, uh, I guess, outside on a porch, and they started yelling to them this thing was coming in their direction. And as I recall, uh, some of the kids began to panic, and they actually, and this thing, they could see this thing come in their direction, and the kids panicked, and some of them actually went right through the glass of the front door. Yeah. And apparently that one fellow who was driving was cut pretty bad, had to go to the hospital, and... Um, when his mother showed up in the emergency room, he told her what happened. She at first didn't believe him. And uh, then later we interviewed um, the mother and the boy, and he gave us some very detailed information about what had taken place. So it was a very fascinating account. 
Yeah, it's amazing because you've got multiple potential witnesses, right? I mean, it's not just one person having that experience. Well, and, you know, in, in so many cases, we do have multiple eyewitnesses. Even with Bigfoot cases, sometimes you have multiple eyewitnesses, and some of these are in daylight, and some are in very close range. You know, I, so many of the TV shows, again, you know, they, they, they're talking about, they see shadowy figure, you know, they're guessing what it may have been, but... You know, these are cases where it's very evident people are not seeing a bear, they're not seeing a dog. People are very close to these things. Sometimes there's evidence at the scene, and the reports are very, very consistent. All right, I have this burning question I need to ask you. Um, we hear a lot, if you're interested in Bigfoot, and Bigfoot in Pennsylvania in particular, then one name keeps coming up over and over again, and that is the Chestnut Ridge. Um, can you tell us, is, is there really a huge concentration around the Chestnut Ridge of Bigfoot sightings, or are reports actually more spread out throughout the state? Uh, give us the straight dope on Chestnut Ridge, because we hear a lot of things about it. Well, there are Bigfoot sightings throughout the state of Pennsylvania, and there's a lot of activity in the southwest PA. Now, whether it's just because we're more based here and we hear more reports, even though we hear other reports from eastern parts of the state and other areas as well. And that's been going on for years and years. But the Chestnut Ridge, again, it's a mountain range that extends from Preston County, West Virginia, through Westmore, Fayette, and Indiana County. It has been a hotbed of phenomena for years and years. I mean, again, I, I know Vince is going back to, well, like I said, the earliest account we had was of an Indian head going back to 1931. Mm -hmm. But I know of other instances, for example, going back to the 1950s. And from what I can recall, there have been Bigfoot sightings reported along that area every year since the major wave of 1973, wow. but not to the extent we had during that wave of 73 and the 74. Mm -hmm. But they're seeing them every year. And uh, so that that's pretty interesting. Uh, but it's not just Bigfoot accounts along the ridge. Now, when I say along the ridge... Some of these sightings are actually on the ridge. Many of them are uh, locations that parallel or border along the ridge. So, I mean, a lot of these are right there along the ridge. Some of these are, you know, very close to the ridge as well. But it's not just Bigfoot. You've got all kind of cryptid sightings from reports of thunderbirds, those, those huge birds with the massive wingspans that we're hearing more reports of more recent years, to Black Panther sightings, to other anomalies up on the ridge, to underground sounds, mystery booms, objects that ascend and descend on the ridge. Uh, I know the end of last year, we were getting reports of people lived up on the ridge of small spheres of light that I've talked about for years, mm -hmm. that I call the mini UFOs that were coming right up to the to the windows and just gliding across the windows of their homes. Um, all kind of strange phenomena. Uh, one case we had up there, Several years ago, a, a landowner had a lot of property on one side of the ridge called me because they walked their property all the time. They knew their trees. And a few years ago, they noticed an, an anomaly. It was a very tall, old tree that had been hollowed out probably from a lightning strike. And they had always noticed it. They didn't think much about it. But the interesting thing was when they took this walk um, a number of years ago, Inside of, it's very hard to picture, inside of the hollow tree, upside down, was another live tree, roots up, that had been pushed down deep inside of the other tree, upside down. Whoa. 
Wow. And that's just one of other anomalies we, we yeah. know about that have occurred up on top of the ridge are just extremely unusual. Mm -hmm. So, yes, there's a lot of phenomena that goes on along the ridge year after year. It's not one particular area, but it's spread across the ridge. But we know Westmore Fed and Indiana counties are very active with reports. Stan, how do you think, well, first, do you think we're going to ever unravel this mystery? And, you know, if we're going to get close to it, what what are the keys? What is going to need to happen for us to move forward with our understanding of this? Well, you know, I, I mentioned this. I, my theory in the book is that, you know, probably during my, my lifetime, it's probably not going to happen. Um I think sometime in the future, as we begin to learn more about certain areas of science that we're just beginning to touch on right now, it begins to give us clues as to how some of these phenomena might actually take place. And I really feel, you know, working electronics all my life and working with a lot of different type of instrumentation or whatever over the years, that as we learn more and more about science and the, the different uh, energies around us, that we'll be able to develop new types of technology and instrumentation that may well help to detect some of these phenomena that we just don't have the capabilities yet to, to detect. Now, one thing I found that years ago, and, and I'm still seeing this in many, many reports, one thing I noticed is that many close-range, low-level UFO encounters, we're not talking lights in the sky, we're talking large structured crafts seen low to the ground, and many close-range Bigfoot encrypted encounters, so encounters with Bigfoot, Thunderbird, Black Panthers, all kind of other weird entities we hear about, they commonly occur in the vicinity of energy sources. So they're seen around high-tension power lines and power plants and gas wells and gas lines, and now we have windmill farms and railroad tracks and reservoirs and radio towers. They very commonly occur in these vicinities. I truly believe there's an energy connection to these to what we're dealing with, hmm. and um, this has been common with many UFO cases as well, as we had mentioned historically as well. So mm -hmm. there, there's something to this, and um, you know, even some of the oddity cases we had with Bigfoot. I remember one case that I I talked about uh, that occurred in Dairy Township again. This was at a large mobile home community back in '73. And I remember we got a call from the from the 911 center that the police up in Derry wanted our team up there right away. We were on the scene of another Bigfoot sighting near Hermony when we got their report. And when we got up to there, um, what we learned was these people were inside their mobile home. They heard this baby crying sound out behind their mobile home. Something was scratching on the trailer. The power in the trailer was going on and off. Uh, one of the witnesses open up the back door, and here's this large, hairy creature standing there. It runs between the trailers. Other people see it. When we got to the scene, we found that the large electrical supply line that ran from the supply box to the trailer had been completely pulled up and ripped up out of the ground, hmm. which was very, very intriguing. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, a lot of these, a lot of the mobile homes had the big... Um, few tanks nearby, there was various energy sources close by, and I think it's more than a coincidence that this is very commonly being seen. So, Stan, if people want to get in contact with you, where can they do that? 
Uh, people can reach me through my website. It's, it's just uh, www.stangordon.info, I-N-F-O. Uh, email is P-A-U-F-O at Comcast.net. And they can keep checking my website for updates where I'll be speaking at and also uh, for sighting reports. Uh, if they're interested, my, I have three books out now. I have The Silent Invasion, which is very popular. If they want to read about some of that really weird Bigfoot UFO material, it's in The Silent Invasion, the Pennsylvania UFO Bigfoot case book. My first book was called Really Mysterious Pennsylvania, where people were physically very close to UFOs and Bigfoot and other cryptids. And the more recent book is Astonishing Encounters, Pennsylvania's Unknown Creatures, and it gets into all kind of very strange cryptid creature reports and things in there people have never even heard of before. And some of those cases strongly indicate that we're dealing in some cases with creatures that appear not to be flesh and blood. And those books are available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or through my website as well. The reports just keep on coming, don't they? They don't yeah, stop. They never end. I mean, it's <laughs> year after year, all year round. People report seeing things and hearing things, and there are so many old reports coming in. We, we can't even begin to imagine how many encounters are going on out there because we hear about a lot of reports, but it's very clear that so much of this is going on, and we never hear about it because so many witnesses are reluctant to report it or don't know where to report or just, would, in some cases, don't want to talk about it. And sometimes it's years later, if then, that we even hear about it. Hmm. Well, we are very grateful that you have done what you've done so far. And uh, here's to many more years of your being in the field and being involved in this mystery and getting to the bottom of it, Stan. We appreciate your time tonight. And we appreciate you having me on. Look forward to seeing you and Andy at the Monster Bash. Oh, yes. And if all goes well, I'll have a new presentation on some of the very strange aspects of Bigfoot and why we have no bodies. Fantastic. We'll be front and center. <laughs> all right, guys. Good to see you. I'll be, I'll looking forward to seeing you again. Okay. Hey, same here. Stan Gordon, thank you very much uh, for being on Sasquatch tonight.